0: Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our second episode of the week. This is our news roundup episode in which we will be talking about several major news items from the tech world this week. First up, it feels like this really kind of overshadowed the whole week in terms of big announcements was Microsoft's big education event in New York at which they announced Windows 10 S uh, and also a new member of the Surface family, the Surface laptop. So we'll talk about those up front. Secondly, we'll talk... Uh, About Hulu's TV launch, this is a live Hulu with live TV, I guess is the formal name of the new offering. This adds a live television element to its existing video on demand service uh, and obviously launches into a fairly crowded space of services like that. So we'll talk about it and what it represents, but also kind of the state of that market, which is something I wrote about this week. Uh, Thirdly, we'll talk about a couple of other TV-related announcements uh, in the context of that. We'll talk about YouTube and Twitter. All three of these companies, Hulu, YouTube, and Twitter, made announcements at what's now called New Fronts uh, or Brandcast events this week uh, in New York. And so we'll talk about YouTube and Twitter's announcements around their TV offerings and, and new shows and so on that they're doing. And if we have time, and we try to keep this episode under a half hour or so, if we have time, after we've discussed all of that, we'll talk a bit about Facebook earnings. So we may or may not do that based on where we are on time by the time we get to that point. So let's start out on Microsoft. Uh, brief summary, if you didn't watch the event live, I, I streamed it, I wasn't there in person. Uh, I will be at Microsoft Build next week in person, which should be fun and-, and be a chance to talk some more about this stuff with people at Microsoft. But uh, streamed it online, as some of you may have done, and as I say, two big announcements: Windows 10 S and the Surface Laptop. The theme of the event was education, and they spent the first two thirds of the event talking about Windows 10 S, which is which felt, at least in the first two thirds of the event, like a uh, sort of a limited and stripped down version of Windows 10 for the education market, primarily K through 12 education. Um, so if you think about kind of what's made Chromebook so successful over the last several years in education, it's about affordability, manageability, and ease of use uh, for the student. And the Windows 10s is designed to address those needs. So uh, these devices are going to be considerably cheaper than Windows PCs have been. Um, The version of Windows is more limited. It can only run apps from the store, which means there's no viruses or anything like that. It's very limited in terms of what can be installed on it. It has some other limitations as well. And then there's some new management software and other stuff like that 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 Microsoft is rolling out for schools. So that was the first two-thirds of the event, all of which gave this impression that Windows 10S was this sort of stripped-down, lesser version of Windows. And then the last third of the event talked about the Surface Laptop, which is actually a premium laptop that happens to run Windows 10 S out of the box, although it can be upgraded to Windows 10 Pro if you want to. Uh, for free, but in the end of the year, and then I think fifty dollars after that. So it was an interesting set of announcements. Big education push. There was other stuff in there as well around software and so on. A whole variety of you know Office three sixty five and other elements of Microsoft software portfolio that got uh, upgrades to deal with education. Minecraft was another component of that. So by far the biggest push that I think we've seen from any of the three big operating system vendors around. Education, you know, Apple and Google have both done bits and pieces here and there, but this is sort of the most joined up approach that we've seen all announced at once. Uh, But a lot of elements there, and and Aaron, I'll stop there and ask you what your take was on all of this.
1: Well, let's start with the Windows 10 S announcement. I'm I'm really curious what they saw in the market that required this. I can only assume it's the manageability of it for education. you know, having it locked down in a way that makes it much easier for high school IT administrators to, to, you know, to make sure that the only software being run on these things is is school approved. Um, And yet there are a lot of other tools that have already existed for that sort of a thing on, you know, managed uh, Windows devices. I'm just, I guess I'm just the, the use case for this hasn't made itself totally clear to me, so I'm not sure, I'm not sure exactly what to make of it.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I, as I say, I think it's a response to Chromebooks, it's a response to iPads, and if you think about Windows 10 S and kind of what it is and its limitations, it's actually a lot like the way an iPad runs. So only apps from the store. Um, you can't change default applications, so the default browser is Edge, Microsoft's home browser, and you can't change that. You can download others from the store. Um, you can't change the default search engine, which is something you can do in iOS. So that's a difference. But a lot of this feels like it's trying to recreate the iPad experience from a from an operating software perspective, operating system software perspective. Uh, but also, as I say, because it's simpler. Um, they're able to to create some hardware from OEMs that's cheaper. And they talked about $189 starting price point for these laptops. Um, Talking to Bob O'Donnell, another analyst who also writes for TechPinions earlier today, it sounds like actually that may not be Windows 10 S specifically. That may be something else called Stream. Um, And so I need to look into that a little bit more. But the point is it's going to bring down the price of laptops to more like the ballpark where Chromebooks have been most effective. And then from a manageability perspective, they've taken their Intune software that's used for managing corporate devices and extended that into the education sphere where you can now uh, set up lots of these laptops with the same sort of configurations uh, pretty easily. It uses a USB stick, which feels a bit last decade, um, you know, rather than doing it, say, over the air or something like that. But it's, it's a lot easier than configuring these machines has been. And then the way it works is uh, that when you boot them up they boot up very quickly and then they wake from sleep very quickly as well so there's some features that are designed for ease of use so it, it very much is designed in that sense at least to to compete in the education market um,
1: yeah I, 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 that, that makes sense I, I mean the, the thing is there have been tools to do to accomplish all of these goals for any Windows administrator for years and years mm-hmm. maybe it's just that it, it makes it a default approach. And a streamlined approach that makes it that much more like reasonable right. or, or much that much more desirable. Yeah, because the, the ability to you know configure a whole range of laptops on the same base configuration, limiting what, what applications can be installed, like all that kind of stuff has been around for years mm-hmm. in the Windows world. Yeah, um, but I think I think the idea that's just sort of a default—you don't have to think much about it—approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than it being an additional cost on top of Windows to get those management mm-hmm. tools this is now the default experience for windows if you if you're going with the windows 10s version right. so that makes sense yeah yeah it just it I, takes
0: it, a lot of that extra stuff out of the picture and just allows it to be out of the box kind of what you'd want it to be in an
1: education environment right i felt like the tie between windows 10s i mean i realize this is an education event but the the tie of windows 10s to the surface laptops that one is even more confusing to me yeah. because the entry point for these is a thousand dollars, and it's crazy that that Microsoft thought it was a good idea to charge a thousand dollars and not provide a full-featured operating system with it. I think the 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 forty-nine-dollar upgrade cost, and I realize it's not an immediate one, but it's one that many people will some at some point have to pay unless Microsoft changes its mind. Yeah. That just to me is crazy. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, like if you get a uh, MacBook Air, you're getting the full OS 10 experience. You're not getting, you know, like nickel and dimed, which is what this feels like to right. me. So I, I think you either you either bake into the cost of the OS and the device. So it's something people don't have to think about um, or you just eat it. Uh, But I I think charging an extra 50 bucks, I I mean, this is marketed. this is obviously targeting primarily college students, and the idea that college students won't all automatically pay that 49 bucks, but do it with annoyance in the process, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like that's how it's going to play out. And the idea that Microsoft doesn't see that as a a brand liability is kind of baffling to me. So that said, about the device itself, I thought it was awesome. Like, I think it's really cool. I, and, it, you know, it sounds like the people who got a chance to actually test it out really came away with high marks. Um, the fabric coating on the surface, you know, I think everybody's reaction is like, "Ooh, gross, right? right. It's going to embed any number of, you know, of gross things that just sort of happen to, you know, having a, a surface you can wipe clean feels like a prerequisite for any kind of laptop when you just think about dirty keyboards get mm. but but this sounds like this sounds this material sounds like it has that ability so it right. sort of mixes the warmth of fabric with the uh, ease of cleaning yeah um, we'll see i thought it was interesting that uh it didn't come with USB C.
0: right yeah it's pretty uh, basic and it's ports
1: Right. Especially because if you watch the, the promo video that they put out, the little two minute, you know, mm. industrial design video that they put out, there's a screen, uh, there's, a, there's a brief clip in there where it shows um, sort of the, bay, the bottom chassis and there are USB-C, USB-C ports in that image. That snuck in to the, to the uh, promotional video. Ah, okay. So they apparently had one with USB-C and decided to go against it. Right. Which, uh, I don't know, I mean, I you know, it's not going to matter in the next year. And, and maybe they're planning on doing a, you know, a, a refresh in a relatively quick turnaround. Yeah. But, um, all in all, I think it's great. I think touch and pen for the screen will be interesting. That was another thing that I wonder how well it'll be in actual... You know, first hand experience. Mm-hmm. Uh I saw another video clip where somebody was writing on right using the pen to write on the screen having and they had to hold the their screen. other hand yeah. up to stabilize the screen. Yeah. And and uh, and that's obviously not a great user experience no. because it's bad enough having to hold one hand out in front of you mm. uh to take advantage of the touch features. It's it's worse to have to hold two hands out in front of you while it, while the laptop's person right. on your lap or on yeah. a desk. So
0: yeah, that was sort of goes to Steve Jobs' famous remark about Touch screens on a laptop give good demo but the, you know in real world right. use, they're kind of frustrating and, and this is an example of that you know it, it struck me when I saw that on stage so here's my theory about Windows 10s and, and because this was a funny event it was a two-thirds on software and K through12 education and you know give all but you know in, insisted that this was kind of a low-end version of Windows and then one third of the event that was about this high-end hardware starts at thousand dollars goes up to about2200. $2, dollars Um, if you fully spec it, and and it's clearly a premium experience. And so my theory is that the the biggest clue to how Microsoft really thinks about Windows 10 S is the very brief remarks that the Windows exec, Terry Myerson, made between the two segments. Uh, Because he said, basically, Windows 10 S is the most soulful expression of Windows, and it needs the most soulful expression of a Windows device. And then he introduced the... Uh, Panos A section uh, and, and the Surface laptop. And that's a bizarre thing to say if you're talking about the stripped-down, cheap version of your operating yeah. system, right? And what does it remind you of? I mean, to me, it reminds me of Tim Cook's comments about the iPad being the clearest expression of the future of computing, uh, which is to say, you know, that's not what you say about your low-end platform. That's not what you say about this marginal afterthought platform. It's what you say about your main computing platform going forward, uh, it may not be the only one you have for now, but it's where you see things going long-term. And so if you start thinking about it in those terms, I think Windows 10 S is the eventual main version of Windows, and Microsoft just can't go there yet. And so you know, if you think of it just as, as the last third, the sort of Surface Laptop and the way that Windows 10 S showed up there, that makes perfect sense. And then you think about the first two thirds, and you think, well, what was that all about? And then you think, well, Microsoft's getting hammered in education, Chromebooks are doing really well. And Microsoft needs a response to that while well, they're developing this Windows 10S concept as kind of the next version of Windows, they're not ready to go there all the way yet. But it happens to be a great fit for what people in education needs because it's simpler, it's more manageable, it's more user-friendly, it's not going to be subject to viruses and and bloat and clutter and everything else. And so you use it also as a sort of center uh, or central feature of your education push along with a bunch of other stuff. And so I think that's the right way to think about the event and the right way to think about Windows 10S. And there are a few other clues too. So the S naming echoes what Microsoft did with the Xbox recently where they have the Xbox One S that's actually an upgraded version of the Xbox One, not a downgraded version. So S signifies improvement, uh, not stripping stuff away. Um, and then there was another thing. It was like nobody's asked this question, but you're answering it anyway, which was about Pro is definitely not going away. So, you know, you don't answer that question unless you think people are going to be asking it, which implies you're thinking about it. Um, and so that's my theory about what's really going on with Windows 10 S. And uh, and in talking again with Bob O'Donnell earlier, he kind of has that sense too. And one of the big issues with Windows is their installed base is their single greatest asset and also their biggest sort of burden, and it's like the albatross around their neck, because every new version of Windows has to be backwards compatible with so many other older things and yet there are so many more things you could do with windows to streamline it and simplify it if you didn't have that and so having at least a version of windows that doesn't have any of that stuff doesn't have to support the win32 apps doesn't have to do any of that stuff can just run uh, apps from the store which could presumably run on arm uh, which wasn't announced this week but something been widely expected that windows will eventually run on arm um, then suddenly you free yourself up from a huge burden. And so I think this is the way Windows is going long term. It's going to take many years to get there, and certainly the pro version is going to stick around for a very long time in the meantime. But that's my theory about what Windows 10S really is about. And in some ways, the education stuff is a bit of a red herring. It's a way to kind of frame it for now, but I think the surface laptop is a much better signal of where Microsoft wants to take it.
1: I I think that's, I think that's a really great insight. And there's all sorts of upside to that strategy because it it improves the Windows experience dramatically in a lot of ways. Um, You know, you obviously don't have to worry about running antivirus software under Windows 10S because of the nature of how it works. Assuming that the rest of the OS is built solidly, you're not going to have users accidentally installing things based on an email attachment that they got. So so there's a ton of upside there that I get. Here's the here's the thing I don't understand even in light of that. Why position it if not in name at least in fact as a budget option to Windows, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, to to Windows Pro. I mean, it's you pay $50 to upgrade to Windows Pro. Right. Right mm-hmm. and 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 their their first big positioning of of Windows S is in the education space, which most people think of as a market for constrained budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Like what's happening, I think that the idea that they ought to create a version of Windows that's more like that the future is Windows S, that makes sense. But I think right now they're shooting themselves in the foot by positioning it as a budget version of Windows. Yeah, and I think they're doing um, that partly. I think that's going to hurt them.
0: Yeah, I think they're doing that partly probably to avoid scaring people into thinking this is going to be the only version anytime soon. I think they want to really make clear that there's the main yeah. version of Windows that works as it always has. This is an alternative, happens to work quite well in education, probably allows them to lower costs because the licensing cost for Windows 10S is lower probably. That, that's what helps OEMs to get the price down and so on and so forth. Um, but, but yeah, there, there are some real issues. I mean, the fact that you can't change not just the default browser, which is frustrating enough, but the default search engine, so you're forced into using Bing, and that you effectively have to pay 50 bucks to change that option, which is just a toggle in, in you know, Mac OS. Um, right. You know, that seems kind of crazy, and I, that's the kind of thing that I can see them changing in time.
1: Um, but, but, but this mentality that you're just describing, I think, is perhaps one of the most important insights in the differences between Microsoft and Apple in how they approach personal computing. Um, and it's this its this absolute dedication on Microsoft's part that, that they can't have compromises, that they can't take people off, that they can't just upset their user base and then deal mm-hmm. with the upset. Mm-hmm. Apple, on the other hand, is perfectly happy to make a lot of people mad in a design decision if they feel like it's where the future needs right. to go to have happier customers later.
0: Yeah, and that's the difference and, between and a consumer and enterprise base, and a base of 100 million Mac users versus well over a billion, sure. you know, Windows users. I think.
1: Yeah, but 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 I mean, Microsoft has to be thinking about that future, and they have to be made. the The problem with the no compromises approach is that the the truth is everything is compromised. Yeah. Uh, whereas for Apple's part, with you know, they choose the compromises that they feel like are are worth making in order to get the better outcome. It's much more strategic. Whereas Microsoft's no compromises approach ends up being much more reactive where a lot of things get compromised. Even if they have this vision of Windows S, which I, which I think you're right about, um, it's already hampered because the nature of the two versions compared to each other makes this S version that has all sorts of benefits feel like a budget version. right? And, and it's positioned that way now from the start and that's gonna be a brand Reality they're going to have to deal with for for Windows 10 s. Yeah going forward.
0: Yeah, no, it's true Well, I bet we could keep talking about this for a while, but we've got other topics to talk about so let's move on to those Um, First off Hulu finally launched this uh, long-anticipated Hulu with live TV option Uh, It's basically 40 bucks a month uh, At a basic level Um, you pay four dollars extra for taking the ads out of the on-demand offering just as you do right now um, you can actually pay a dollar less to not have the video on-demand offering. So you can pay $39. Um, a couple of other upsells. There's, a, I think, a Showtime option to add the Showtime channel. And then there's a sort of a full DVR option as well um, where you can add uh, proper DVR. It comes with a basic DVR function but doesn't allow ad skipping and various other things, which is kind of the whole point of a DVR for most people. Um, but, yeah, they launched that this week into what's a fairly crowded market already. So you've got uh, Sling TV, which is kind of the original player in this market. You've got uh, PlayStation View, uh, You've got DirecTV now. You've got YouTube TV that just launched a few weeks ago, albeit in only a few markets. Uh, so there's basically five major offerings in this space now, and this is the, the fifth one to come in. Arguably one of the least flexible Um, But it it differentiates through I'd argue the user interface at least in theory and we can talk about that a little bit and Through the fact that Hulu is built in so you've got that huge video on demand library as well as the live options Aaron, what was your take on this?
1: Yeah, you know, I think There were a lot of people disappointed in the details and I can see why but I think everybody just keeps holding out hope for kind of the perfect video on demand or the perfect over-the-top service and that hasn't that still hasn't come yet and I even had high hopes for what Hulu is doing and I'm a little disappointed in some of the some of the compromises that they had to make That said, I do, I do think there there are two things. one I think it's a better value proposition on on average compared to most of the other over-the-top services. If you were already a Hulu subscriber, that's to me the kicker. I think if you already were paying your eight bucks a month for Hulu then then this is actually not that unpalatable of an upgrade to be able to get live tv get access to more programming and also get even just basic dvr functionality i mean it isn't it is annoying that you can't skip commercials but you at least get the benefit of time shifting for like live sports on espn for example the second thing that i think that's really great about this hulu offering is i think it's going to make a dvr feature table stakes for anybody in this space now that Sling is doing it and rolling out this beta of it, and now that Hulu has one that's an offer available right away, I don't think anybody is going to be able to really draw customers to an over-the-top TV service without some kind of DVR or time-shifting functionality built in at the basic entry-level price. And I think that's a good thing because that that's one of the ways that these over-the-top services have consistently fallen short. It's been the biggest thing holding me back from any of these. Is not having some sort of time shifting feature built in, and now that this is there um, with Hulu and getting there with a couple others, I think that's this is now everybody is going to have to provide this, and that's a consumer gain in the end.
0: So, what do you use DVR for? Because I've had some interesting conversations about this on Twitter this week with people. Um, you know, I basically I haven't had access to a DVR for I guess three years or something now since I ditched regular pay TV. Um, and, uh, I haven't really missed it at all. Um, I really wasn't using it much before that cause I basically use video on demand for what most people use DVR for. The one thing people have said to me is, you know, for live sports. So you, you start recording yeah. it and then you watch it partway through the actual live and you slowly catch up by skipping the ads. I mean, is that your main use case or do you use it for other stuff too?
1: No, that's the main one. And especially when football season rolls around, that's my favorite sport to watch on TV. Mm. And so I am I was born in Denver, so I'm a Broncos fan. I don't know if this means we're going to lose some listeners by admitting <laughs> that. Maybe we'll gain some. There are a lot of Broncos fans out there. Um, but that's definitely a huge benefit. Um, I won't even always get to a game on Sunday. I just uh, sort of avoid the news and then... And then, and then pick up the game the next day. Or even if I did see the score, I still like to kind of go and watch the highlights and go back through. And I like having the full game at my disposal because if you're getting the little three-minute highlights through ESPN, there's a lot about the game you might miss. Mm-hmm. Um, I like it for college sports for sure um, as well. And so I think, I think for me, you know, and, and I follow other sports sort of sporadically. I like, you know, if there's a big, like I'm not an avid basketball fan, but there are big games that come up that I'm interested in, and and I I, I really almost never sit down to watch them live if I can avoid it, um, because they're you know I'm, we've got kids we're putting to bed or you know I had to go to you know I, I went to my my son's baseball game that night or I don't know, any number of other things. Very rarely do these these live events, mostly sports, line up with with. Uh, uh, you know with my schedule and so the time shifting f- thing for me is a big deal with live sports so i gotta say being able to fast forward through the through the game is is really critical i think that's true for football games especially you know but uh, like football games last three hours but if you can fast forward and you get good at it then you know you can get through one in in an hour yeah an i was going to say there's out.
0: only an hour of actual play in there anyway right so
1: right and that's and that and that's really important to be able to do that mm. and so those are the DVR functions for me. The thing is, a lot of the other shows th- that I watch, th- those that I do watch, you know, show up in the Hulu service I'm already paying for, right. or show right. up, you know, uh, or I just wait till the season ends and then I pick up the season when it gets on Netflix, yeah. for example. I mean, Sh- Sherlock is a good example of this because season four hits Netflix like uh, in a week or two. Mm. And I didn't I didn't watch it live when it was on PBS, but, uh, but, you know, I'm perfectly happy to, to, I'll be definitely be watching it when it hits Netflix. And and so these are, I guess these are the ways I use the DVR mostly. And right. But it's only because live TV is not a big part of my TV mm-hmm. watching. Yeah. But for the stuff that I kind of have to get live for it to be useful, like sports, mm-hmm. there's there are no good options out there. Right.
0: Yeah, and I think what what Hulu actually this service, and I you know I, I signed up as a trial subscriber or whatever for now. I'm, I'm a Hulu subscriber already, um, and uh, what what it really highlighted to me was how little I value live on top of on demand. Like when it, especially yeah. coming from Hulu, it really highlighted it somehow. The fact that I go from twelve bucks a month, whatever I pay for the ad free service to forty something dollars a month, plus you know another fifteen for DVR or whatever. Um, it, it just highlighted how that's not worth thirty something dollars to me, um, you know, for the handful of you know sporting uh, events that I watch in the in the average month, um, you know, which hasn't kind of hit home quite as much with some of the other services because those added VOD and various other things as part of the core package. This was like I get all that stuff already for my twelve dollars, so having to pay forty four dollars where you know 32 of that is is live with basic dvr uh just didn't feel worth it to me and it just made me realize how little i value live tv other than for sports and there's a lot of channels in there that have nothing to do with sports i'm just never going to watch them you know there's a bunch of shows i could dvr there and manually skip through the commercials or i can watch them on hulu and the ad free version and it's you know much easier um but yeah i I wrote a piece for tech pinions which then got syndicated to recode this week about the state of online pay tv and and it you know I just concluded that all this stuff is aiming at the same sweet spot and it's all missing it for me at least me personally I've subscribed to several of these it's not to say I don't see any value in it I've ditched pay tv and I've have over time subscribed to various of these options and and interestingly my research made me want to try playstation view because that's now finally got pretty broad support for devices and it's got some clever features and some interesting channel lineups and so on but um, you know, all of these things are still flawed. They're all still trying to hit this mythical price point of $35 and uh, either missing that uh, or, you know, making arbitrary decisions about what's in and what's out and what I have to pay extra for. And it just – it's frustrating and it doesn't give me still – the option that I want to. And it made me realize that Sling TV is actually doing one of the best jobs in terms of uh, parceling it up and allowing you to pick which bits you want and don't want. And, and they're starting to advertise that as a la carte TV, but it's not there yet. But it's probably the closest thing we have to it at this point. Uh, but yeah, to me, the whole thing still feels frustrating. And the user interface on Hulu, just briefly, I found really frustrating to use. There's a lot of stupid bugs in the user interface that make it really hard to do the things you want to uh, it, it feels like it's trying too hard to be beautiful and not hard enough to be useful.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, I, I think what we're going to see is that, that that price point problem, it has everything to do with the content providers. Absolutely. And I don't think you're going to mm-hmm. see that go down. Mm-hmm. And so where I think all these different over-the-top services will compete is the add-on features. And so I think full D, a full DVR experience is inevitable at the entry level. Yeah, and YouTube does that the, already. They're the only ones that really yeah. have that advanced
0: full unlimited DVR right now.
1: And that's obviously Google leveraging its massive, you know, infrastructure yeah. as a benefit. But I think it's going to be the I think that's going to be one of the ways that mm-hmm. everybody competes is by making live TV as useful as possible within the constraints of the pricing that they just sort of have handed to them by the content providers. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: Well, let's briefly, we're going to ditch the Facebook earnings bit. We'll just talk briefly about these two other bits of TV news this week. Uh, Twitter announced first a partnership with Bloomberg and then a bunch of other deals uh, for live and other uh, television content for Twitter, which is a huge expansion in their lineup of TV shows. Uh, Some of it's exclusive, some of it's just licensing existing stuff, as they've done so far. But They're creating quite a few new shows, many of them in partnership with other companies, which is fascinating. And then YouTube announced, I think, six new shows pretty much all of them tied to a celebrity of one kind or another. says so Ryan Seacrest, there's Casey Perry's on that same show, there's Ellen DeGeneres has one, uh, there's Rhett and Link, I guess, a comedy show and a bunch of others. Uh, but these are mostly going to go on the ad-supported version of YouTube. So these are not YouTube Red originals that are exclusive to the YouTube Red service, which is kind of the main emphasis on the last round of originals they did. These are going on the ad-supported service, which is an interesting shift in strategy for them. But Aaron, what was your take on all this stuff?
1: Well, I think this is really interesting in light of what we were just talking with uh, about uh, over-the-top services with, because what's fascinating about this is we really kind of have two models competing with each other for people's viewing time. And there's the traditional uh, sort of curated video experience. It's all scheduled out. You might have DVR functionality built in, but that's just approximating the TiVos that everybody you know had before this. And so there's essentially translating the old model over to the internet. And now the new model here is more, much more like the Wild Wild West where everybody just kind of does whatever. And they put it up there and then they promote it and expect consumers to somehow find it and like it enough that they're willing to deal with a different user interface, right? A different outlet. And this Wild Wild West approach to video, if anything, is picking up speed. It's always sort of been there but in much smaller, uh, market penetration. But now that you've got YouTube pursuing this in earnest, Twitter doing its live TV st- you know, it's live video stuff, Amazon originals, Netflix originals, Hulu originals is becoming much more like, uh, just, you know, and then you've got all these YouTube creators that are building tons of, of, of viewers. It's, it's, it's a wild, wild west model where just, People just go kind of find what they want, where it exists, and and uh, it, it's it's a much crazier experience. It, I don't think we're at an equilibrium by any means, and I'm curious what it's going to be. I'm curious if it's going to lean more towards the wild wellness model where every content producer is just sort of putting it out in the outlets that they have or if on the other hand we move back to a consolidation that's much more like the old model
0: yeah i think that's definitely regardless of which way it goes i think there's going to be a role for aggregators in it and whether they end up aggregating everything sure. and owning it or whether they just aggregate third-party stuff into a user interface there's going to be a role for aggregation because nobody wants to go out and find everything you know teenagers are willing to do that because they have more time than money and uh, tolerance for ads, but um, you know, a lot of us are going to want it packaged up in some way. And so there's going to be an opportunity there for aggregation, I think, for sure. All right, well, let's wrap things up there. Um, we didn't, as I say, get time to discuss Facebook's earnings. I'll just plug quickly two subscription things that I, I do that you may want to check if you're interested in Facebook earnings. One is Tech Narratives, which we mentioned most weeks and where I cover uh, all these news stories this week and, and quite a lot more as well um so it's technarratives.com if you want to go check that out the other one is that i do this quarterly decks service where i do a slide deck each quarter on each of the major tech companies earnings uh puts together tons of charts you may have seen if you follow me on twitter you'll see a lot of the charts from that already uh but packages up those charts so i've recently started doing these video voiceovers for those decks as well and i did one of those this week for facebook so there's a deck and a video so if you want to go check that out, uh, go to jackdawresearch.com and look for the quarterly deck service there. Um, we'll include links in the show notes too so that you can easily get to those. But I did a deep dive on Facebook this week. Uh, I think of a roughly 15-minute video on that. So that may be of interest if that topic's of interest to you, even though we didn't cover it here on the podcast. So thanks for being with us. Sorry, it's been fairly rapid fire. A lot of fast talking from me, especially this week. But uh, had a lot to cover, but hopefully it was useful and interesting for you. Have a great weekend, and we should be back with you next week with... Uh, Again, a question of the week, quite possibly focused on Microsoft's build announcements because there's probably going to be a lot to talk about there. And then the usual news roundup episode later in the week as well. So look forward to being with you again next week. Thanks.